Today on Security Science, we have a special around the virtual table discussing some of today's hot security topics. Thank you for joining us. I'm Dan Mellinger, and I have with me on the line the Sultan of Risk Based Vulnerability Management, co founder and CTO of Kenna Security, Ed Bellis. How's it going, Ed? Doing well, Dan. How about yourself? Oh, doing really good. And we're particularly excited to have a couple special guests joining us today. So our first guest is the founder of White Hat Security, an advisory board member for multiple cybersecurity companies, the current CEO of BitDiscovery, and most important to our conversation here, Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, Jeremiah Grossman. How's it going, Jeremiah? I'm good. It's good to be with you guys. Oh, awesome. Thanks so much for joining us. And then last but not least, we have a gentleman who has testified before a Senate committee is known for his contributions to responsible disclosure. He's the reviewer of Black Half CFP submissions, is the founder and CTO of Vericode, and previously researched vulnerabilities and built password crackers in some sort of loft. So, <laughs> <laughs> of course, everyone, we've got Chris Weisselbel. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Hey, thanks, Dan. It's great to be here. Uh, We really appreciate it. And just so everyone knows, I'm going to be handing off to Ed to really drive the discussion here today. Uh, We have a very on 2020 brand situation in California where we're on fire a little bit or skies are, you know, this like nice burnt umber color. And they're ripping up my street out in front of the recording studio. So, Ed, take it away. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. Hey, guys. So thanks for joining us today. Um, I wanted to pick up our conversation where we kind of left off uh, pre-recording where we were talking a little bit about uh, not only vulnerability management, patch management, but some of the changes that we see amongst uh, cybersecurity since all of this pandemic thing went down earlier this year, right? We're seeing a lot of folks that are now uh, pretty much everyone working remote, which has changed certainly the landscape in terms of who we're employing and who we're hiring, but also how we're securing these things you know, what sort of uh, preventions that we're putting in, controls that we're putting in, and we can't rely a lot on on the network layer and things like that. Um, you know, one of the things that came up earlier today that I was talking about was uh, while the how has changed, the amount of work hasn't changed. I feel like it's shifted quite a bit in terms of how it is that we're going about securing things. But the amount of work that you know security professionals have in front of them hasn't changed that much, right? It's, there's still a lot of it. The good news, I think, for us who are looking to hire security talent is a lot of us have decided, hey, we don't necessarily have to have people hired or hiring people in the same place as our location of our offices anymore, right? So that's really expanded the talent pool. And Chris, I know that you specifically were talking a little bit about some of the things that you guys are doing in Vericode. Would love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah. So typically, you know, it would, it would take us a few months to hire a, a, a security person. That's because we have a, we have a strong preference for being in the Boston area um, and, uh, you know, it just part of our company culture was if you, if, if you, uh, you know, the default is you come into the office, you know, we have a, we have a nice office building. We like collaborating there. We like the, the culture it brings. Um, but that all got blown up, uh, you know, in March and, and we, we have, we haven't had that. Um, and we're not quite sure exactly when we're going to get it back, but it'll probably be sometime next year, right? At least I think we're going to be out of the office at least until the spring. So that's a long time. So, you know, and, you know, if you think about, uh, you know, a lot of security people, they change jobs every few years. So, (laughs) you know, if you get one year of someone remote, (laughs) that that could be half of their tenure. Um, So, you know, we made the decision, of course, we're going to hire remote during this. And um, it was basically like a month to hire. I, I filled three positions, and they, they only took about a month to, to, to fill them. So that's a dramatic change. And it just shows me that um, there's, a, there's, a, the, there's a big talent pool of security people out there that um, are, are probably being underutilized because of these requirements to come into the office. And I, I just frankly, you know, you don't really need to do that unless you actually have to come in and, and reboot a machine. But you know, you don't need security people to do that. You can have an IT person do that. So you could you could you could leverage a few people. So I'm I, I kind of think this is this is a wake up call that more security jobs probably can be done remote. Uh, 
And, uh, you know, I don't know if once we go back in the office, if we're even going to put that requirement back on people. Yeah. I mean, you, you brought up a great point about the, the, you know, every now and then you might need somebody to go in there and physically reboot a machine. And Jeremiah, you, we were talking about this earlier. And, you know, there's some of these orgs who are kind of born, you know, out of the cloud where the people who are rebooting the machines work at Amazon and Google and Microsoft anyway. Um, and I know that you're, you're over at uh, BitDiscovery now, which I believe you guys have always been kind of decentralized and remote. Yeah, we, uh, well, I lived in Hawaii and other people lived in Texas <laughs> and we had no, no reason to have an office. And so it's, uh, it gave us the ability to, to take world-class people wherever they were and, and leave them and keep them exactly where they were. Um, lower cost didn't have to, ma when you have an office, yeah, you have to go in, but you have to have to manage an office and you have that cost, you have commute. So doing an all virtual company, we thought it was advantageous. We could just focus on what it is that we do and want to be doing. What I wonder about is I think because an, an employer like, a, like Chris at Verico and me at BitDiscovery, I think the, comp the competition amongst employees might increase. Before, if I had a company policy that says we could only hire people in the, in the general area, that was my pool of people. Now a candidate must compete against a worldwide population of other talent. You're going to have to be world class because your physical geography is going to give you no adva advantage over somebody else. You're going to have to be really good at what you do on a world stage. And that's going to be a very different world. Yeah, that, 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 that's a good point. Um, we, we made the decision a while ago, and this was with our security research team. We haven't done this with our information security team to, to go global because we couldn't find application security researchers with deep expertise just in the United States. So we started glowing global and we now have people that are in the UK, uh, in Europe, um, and, you know, it, 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 it makes us better to have a more global talent pool. So I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, I totally agree. In fact, I'd add there's there's certain jobs where time zones don't matter either. There are, there are like you mentioned, Chris, you, you went with your security research team, you kind of went global, but for some other reasons, you may have stuck with the North America as an example for your information security team, right? So I, I find that even at Keno, like we run into things where it's like, you know, time zones don't matter in this case, right? So let's go find the talent wherever that talent may lie. There's other times where you need to interface with people who are you know, at least awake at the same time that you're awake, right? And that makes things a little bit more challenging. I guess one, one thing that also I heard from HR departments, and I think, I think Atlassian and GitHub were hiring internationally all over the place. Um, one was the, uh, the, burden on, the burden on local laws and regulations for how you treat employees, you know, tax withholdings and, you know, how you hire and, you know, working hours and things like that gets pretty complicated to keep up with. Like there was a company I was talking to that had a smaller kind of company was, but it had like people in 52 different geos. That's the tough part. I think it's easier on the hiring, harder on the operationalizing. Yeah. And well, there's also companies out there that specialize in doing just that, right? And the PEOs and all of these different companies that are all about employment law and hiring people around the globe and dealing with all of those employment laws and payroll and everything that might come up with that. So it's almost sprouted other cottage industries as well. So, you know, in addition to that, we were with the, some of the other things that we were talking about uh, related to everything that's gone down. And obviously a lot has changed since probably all of us were, I think, at RSA or earlier this year, right before all hell broke loose. Um, but, you know, some of the things around uh, what has changed in terms of of how you actually secure uh, these corporate networks. Jeremiah, you had mentioned uh, that BitDiscovery was doing, had done a report and we were talking a little bit about, you know, what's the, 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 the cloud makeup of these companies and how many have actually kind of picked up and moved things to the cloud versus just they're, they're continuously adding new things to the cloud while remaining, uh, you know, keeping the legacy stuff on prem, which I would imagine makes things even more complicated for them, not less. Best I could tell, um, very few, if any, systems get cloudified. Legacy systems don't move to the cloud. They build a brand new system in the cloud and then they slowly 
very slowly will decommission legacy systems. And so when I'm looking across, let's say the Fortune 500 companies, you know, a very tiny percentage overall of their overall and external attack surface, if you call it that, is hosted in the cloud. So we're ha- we have legacy, the on-premises stuff, then we have cloud, and then as security people, we have to manage uh, both and the migration between the two. And I think what's going to be especially difficult is we have to have these strategies for securing stuff in the, in the cloud, and then we're going to have to manage the security around legacy using very few resources because if they're legacy, the business is not going to want to spend on them. They want to spend on the new stuff in the cloud. So how do you defend the old stuff when you got no money? Yeah, good point. And, and not to mention, you know, you talked about all the, the, the employment talent and things like that. Nobody actually wants to work on legacy anyway. Right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, that's going to be, you know, whether it's old WordPress stuff. All, I think Chris mentioned old JBoss stuff. Yeah, let's, yeah, can you uh, redo this and support this old JBoss 4 stuff? Like, I mean, it's, is JBoss the new COBOL in the AppSec world or what? <laughs> yeah, I, I think, I think, uh, you know, move, just shifting to the cloud, there's, there's just not much advantage there, right? The advantage really is 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 rebuilding. If the application is important and you're going to be running it for like the next decade, um, it's it's really important to rebuild it. Um, but it's it's hard. It's really hard. There's so many advantages to it, though. Like talent, is, you're going to get more talented people who 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 want to work on the new stuff. So you're going to get better retention of people. Um, it's going to be more reliable. You're going to have higher velocity for new features using the new architectures. Those are all the reasons to do it. And that's why people do it, but it's really hard and expensive and it takes a really long time. I mean, we've been working for a few years now, migrating all of our old legacy stuff, which we built in 2007, 2008, 2009, um, to, to, to cloud native, uh, infrastructure. The other important part about it is like all, almost all of your security controls have to change too. And so it's a lot of work for the security team and they they have to take classes in all the different cloud technologies. And then you probably are going to be switching vendors too, like because some vendors can support the cloud native architectures better than other vendors ha- do. Like right now we have two MSSPs at Veracode because we have one that we chose because they, su- they supported AWS very well. Um, but we liked the other one for our data center and our corporate network. So that's, <laughs> that's more expense too. Right. Um, so I think you end up with a lot of duplication of security controls and it's, it's a challenge. And so I think we're sort of in this decade-long process now where the leaders have been doing it for maybe two, three, four years. But this is, this is a big transition for, for the security industry to, to, to become cloud native. You know, it's going to be interesting. It's uh, We'll get through this whole cloud migration thing or cloud adoption thing one way or the other. And then as it happens, and IT will shift the other way. We'll want to go back to on-prem. And if we think it's really hard to cloudify things, imagine trying to take something off of App Engine or AWS and all those services and moving it on-prem. Like, that's just not going to happen. <laughs> like, you think moving to the cloud's hard? Wait till we have to move off. <laughs> Isn't it just a Docker container? Don't you just pick it up yeah. and move it? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's funny. And, and, you know, one of the things that we see a lot because uh, at Kenna, we're playing in both kind of not only the cloud and, and on-prem world, but we also play in both, uh, to you guys' point, the infrastructure and application worlds. And we're starting to see a lot more melding of those two worlds, too, where it's really hard to... They say, oh, this is an infrastructure vulnerability or this is an application vulnerability. It's almost like everything is becoming an application vulnerability in some way, right? It's just various different services that you're providing. And, uh, you know, not only is it cloud native, but you have a container and you're responsible for this part of the service. And when you go to remediate that vulnerability, regardless of what it is, it's almost always some form of developer who's actually doing the remediation work. No, that's a that's a huge change that that, that we're seeing because of, you know, infrastructure as code and everything is written as code and that means it can be it, it's it's beneficial if it's controlled by the development team right because all those changes and all those configurations 
are version controlled and you can roll back and you can you can stage stage it all and test it all before going to production so there's huge huge advantages to that but we're so we're seeing this kind of shift like all these people who did operational security right they scanned live machines what needs to be patched what configuration is now known bad or how something has drifted to a bad configuration there's all this there's a huge industry, right? That that's it's 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 probably one of the biggest part parts is is the vulnerability management, and they're scanning all this stuff. Um, but what happens when you know you can actually understand that you know you have something known bad or a known bad configuration when it's still at the code stage because it's a configuration file. So um, what we're seeing that you know sort of that management of security of infrastructure shift left. And so you have, you know, you have these companies that um, span both, right? You have these container companies that are partly in the SDLC and looking at the configuration of the container at at uh, when it's being built, and then they also have some things that are monitoring and looking at at you know as it's running. So we're starting to see things span um, dev- development and operations, and then you have purely operational companies coming into the development space to check configuration at that time as opposed to there. And I mean, we're doing this now at Vericode, like we're looking at container configuration files. So it's not just the framework configuration files, it's starting to be the container configuration files. And I can see us doing more and more configuration over time, Kubernetes uh, configuration, um, what are your security groups in your cloud? I I think that the world of vulnerability management is going to be shooken up over time. You know, as as you're talking there, Chris, I, there's a there's a term I recall, and that you guys will know this very well, called patch exhaustion. We're <laughs> exhausted from patching. You guys have been around technology long enough and using computers long enough. I remember, like you know, in the early days of the web, there was a time where I, my my computer, the one I'm using right now, was fully patched. I patched my browser. I patched my operating system. I was fully patched, and I could go on about my day. It seems now I have to patch constantly. My browser gets patched, you know, daily or weekly. My operating system gets daily or weekly. My plugins on, and that's just by one computer. Is our my my phone next to me? Like, are we in the apps on it? Are we ever fully patched at any moment in time on one machine? And then then we're talking about all the containerization that we're doing. Like at any moment in time, these systems, these mission critical systems that we're using, we are never, ever, ever patched. And the patches are coming from a thousand different companies. That complexity is daunting. It's nuts. And so patch management, it's like an easy thing to say, hey, just patch. The people that say that, I don't think they know what they're talking about. <laughs> I think it's moving to just becoming continuous, right? So you have to think of it as a, as, a, as a completely continuous process. I mean, there are still companies that are like, well, we patch once a month. I mean, patch Tuesdays once a month, right? But it's, it's for, for, the, for the people that are trying to maintain a specific risk posture, it really is becoming continuous. And as you say, it's really complex because it's at all different levels, right? Um, it's... It's it's the open source components. It's the configuration of my framework. It's uh, you know it's my app server. It's my OS. So it's very easy to miss. So when you say patch continuously, do you literally mean we're patching all? Like there's never a moment in time where we're not patching. Is that what we're saying now? Like because it could be. Well, you know, I, 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 people are moving to a continuous development model. Okay, so for the things that are changing in a continuous development model, like you know, like the the example of like the Netflix or the Facebooks where they're pushing multiple things every day, you know, why why can't they be, you know, changing their infrastructure as code at the same time to be pulling out a new version of something? Or why can't they, in that new version, pull down a new open source component? So I think as soon as you start to automate the patching process and you're changing your code every day, you get you, you, you get this continuous nature, but then there's this infrastructure that is just stuck there that's not part of the process, like VPNs and endpoints and firewalls and all these other things. They can't go continuous, right? And those are a big sore point. So I guess uh, then it comes down to we have to, as security professionals, we have to protect systems that are never going to be up to date on their patches. Yep. <laughs> so that's a difficult world. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and and that these are just you guys are talking about patches that are actually written by somebody else for you to apply. Not to mention all of the patches that you actually have to write yourself that are on your own software. 
So yeah, it's it's going to be a world of whatever about a software we have in the world, we're going to have 10 times more in probably the next 10 years. Um, I don't know if anybody could have been more right ever than when Mark Andreessen's software has eaten the world. <laughs> like, has there ever been more a prophetic statement? We are witnessing it right now. Like, all we do is software, and there's going to be so much more of it. And furthermore, like, I, I saw a tweet somewhere that says when Windows starts, or when you when you load a page in Internet Explorer or Edge, no one knows really how it works. Like, we're now we have systems that are so complex. There's no one in the world that knows how a browser loads a web page. I mean, so we have constantly evolving software in a world where no one knows how it all works. Okay, sure. <laughs> it is definitely getting more complex. I mean, Chris, you're talking a little bit, you know, about all the different services and the infrastructure as code and things like that. But imagine, you know, the big push we went from we got to break up these monolithic apps and, and make them microservices, right? And now we've got millions of services all over the place and nobody knows what relies on what service anymore. So if something goes wrong in one of those services, you have these cascading failures, right? It's like the complexity is just uh, making things really difficult, I think, for security people. The other thing we're seeing is just, and this is sort of uh, along the same line as the microservices, is we, we see a lot of sh shared code within large organizations where they sort of build their own frameworks, they build their own components. And, you know, obviously places like Google and Facebook are doing this, but we're seeing this across all of our enterprise customers. And so you have this sort of second party code. So one team is building it and another team is, you know, consuming it. And they have to make sure that when they fix a bug, it gets out to all of those places. So you have shared code and also microservices. So even within like the application portfolio within one organization, it's just super complex. Yeah, and not even to mention like uh, you talk about them writing their own their own uh, functions and things like that. And then you talked about like the open source libraries. We also see people who are just like forking those libraries and making modifications to them, and then they have to maintain that over time. And things go wrong there as well. It just the complexity blows my mind sometimes. I guess with the group of us or in the industry, we don't talk so much about it, but at the supply chain of where software comes from, there's a finite number of programmers in the world developing all this software. Are we seeing more and more software developed by more and more software programmers? Like, is there a significant uptick in the number of people contributing code or is it more or less flat? I think it's easy to start, you know, contrib contributing code. I have a 12-year-old and, you know, he learned how to program in JavaScript so he could add to this you know, framework that is you know, some game uses, and he published Minecraft. It. Yeah, probably <laughs> probably Minecraft, and he published it, and someone's consuming it. So, I don't know if he has a bug in there that could actually be exploited by anybody. But you know, I think it's an example of how easy it is to start contributing a little bit of code um, and write, you know, a library that get, gets consumed. I mean, I think we talk about like the top 1000 libraries, but there's literally millions of open source libraries out there. Um, so I, I think, I think the pool is expanding. Maybe it's not all professional programmers, but you're getting some, we, you know, we, we call them citizen, citizen developers. It's just when an employee <laughs> decides to just to learn programming and start, start writing it. And it could be a doctor, um, for doing a research project, or it could be a you know a stockbroker trying to automate something. The tools are there to make it easier and easier to program now. And the good news is, is once something works and people are using it, it never goes away. <laughs> the good, the good thing. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that we talked about earlier. Um, speaking of things that never go away, is this kind of cottage industry of things that it doesn't seem like anybody is uh, certainly on the security vendor side is doing much in terms of like checking, like we were talking about the word WordPress plugins and how there's a million of them out there and there's so many different vulnerabilities in it, but there doesn't seem to be, everybody seems to look at it as though, oh, it's WordPress. I'm not putting anything too important on here. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of money on maintaining this. I'm not going to certainly be doing vulnerability scanning against this, or I don't have a whole lot of options to do vulnerability scanning against this, right? What, I mean, what are you guys seeing out there? I feel like there's there's a million opportunities for just kind of various takeovers of of all of the different content uh, uh, providers and things like that. Well, 
WordPress has its reputation, good, bad, or otherwise. You know, WordPress is like, I think it's like 20% of the web when you look at it, something like that. Like, it's ridiculously deployment. WordPress is actually, WordPress core security, it's had its problems in the past, but it's actually pretty solid. Where we run into issues predominantly is with the WordPress plugins, you know, that, that people use and they deploy. When it comes to infosec vendors and vulnerability management, you have, uh, let's say, the Qualices and the Tenables of the world. They generally go look after vulnerabilities with CVEs, network-based vulnerabilities. They really don't scan. No one really scans. That segment of the market doesn't really scan for WordPress phones. And when they do, they certainly don't go after the WordPress plugin vulnerabilities. So then you go to the other half of the vulnerability management market, the AppSec companies, of which uh, Chris at Veracode is one, Whitehead and others. They look for custom web app vulnerabilities. Very rarely, in my experience, do they see them scanning for WordPress, even WordPress core vulnerabilities, let alone the plugins. So this world of WordPress plugins, it's not well served by the vendors of the world. No one has a third party, generally has a third party WordPress plugin scanning vendor that they consume data from. So those who use things like WP Scan, which I'll highly recommend, are doing it on their own. That only signals to me that the vast majority of WordPress instances out there that companies run don't get really touched. There's vulns everywhere out there. And you could say, yeah, these WordPress things are just blogs. It's static, more or less static content. But you never really know where these things are deployed. And if you hack that one point, that one server, you get a beachhead into the rest of the organization. So that's, that's a source of risk that I'm, uh, I'm curious about. And I'll be looking at some more research later on. You know, I think a lot of InfoSec teams sort of ignore the, the WordPress. They're, they're like, oh, it's just the marketing team takes care of that. They, they hire someone to host it somewhere else. It's not on our network. Um, and I'm not, I'm not going to worry about that. But then there's, I think there's also a lot of, you know, places that don't have an InfoSec team that are just hosting it on their own corporate network um, or your own cloud area. And, and it, it could be a potential entry point um, in, in, into, that, into that network. It just see, it does seem like something that just constantly falls through the cracks. And it's not just WordPress. It's like, I think it's a lot of these marketing tools. It's all the CMS systems. It's a, it's a lot of these marketing systems that are all sort of outsourced. And the, the thing that's in common for marketing systems, which is scary, is it's customer data, yeah. right? So if that stuff gets breached, then that's all like reportable, reportable events. It's not just like someone's laptop getting popped that's an employee, which you don't have to report. So marketing systems, I guess, I guess scare me. We, we do a lot of supply chain security uh, on those vendors. Um, because there's a lot of vendors out in that space that don't take security seriously because the marketing teams typically don't know what to ask unless you have a robust vendor management program. So, so uh, this ends up being a, a compelling source of risk or a compelling entry point for the average adversary because of the way the market dynamics respond. For instance, um, Qualys is not going to go after, you know, or Tunable is not going to go after whoever the net, all the other network scanning guys are not going to go after these these plugins because it's really hard to enumerate and test for these web app these particular type of web app vulnerabilities. And generally, the AppSec market, you're not going to pay the rate, you know, your application scanning rates that you would for a bank for some WordPress site that it, the marketing department has that it really isn't worth a lot to you. So the only way for a company to get their arms around this is to do it themselves, which is exactly what they tell them not to do. You really don't really want to do run your own scanners, your own vulnerability management programs. So we're stuck in this zone. So this is why we see a lot of WordPress things getting popped because there's really no, the incentives in the system are such that these things are going to be constantly deployed and constantly unpatched and right back to where we started with patch exhaustion. Like how do you keep all these WordPress plugins patched? Or even how do you prevent anybody from stop installing them? I doubt that there was a, a, a vendor management process around adding the, you know, the file system plugin to WordPress, right? Like a lot of companies worry, like any developer can pull down this open source package, put it into the container or, or, or link it into the app, and they say, oh, I need a control around, around uh, my open source usage, right? So that's where you get software composition analysis and other things like that. I don't think anyone's really thinking about controls around you know, pl plug-in plug -in usage. That's just an individual person's decision. I, I want to use this plugin, and the CISO doesn't know about it. Yeah. To uh, 
uh, to possibly raise a, cont- a contentious issue, <laughs> a little point. Um, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about when we talk about these topics is the uh, as a point of peak prevention. Has our industry reached the point of peak prevention where we spend billions of dollars annually, hacks still happen all the time, that if we even doubled our budget and doubled our efforts, we wouldn't really see less breaches. And that the real only way forward from here to make a substantial impact is fast detection and response or minimizing the damage. I don't know how you guys feel about that. I'm really interested, but have we reached the limit of find a vulnerability and patch it as a way of stopping breaches? Uh, I think... um a nuance in there besides detection and, um, you know, response is, is like limiting the blast radius of different things. Right. So like if a host gets popped, that's, that's it. Right. It's just that one thing. Um, if one user gets popped, it's just what they have access to. Um, so I, I think that's a, that's a, that's somewhat of a nuance and that kind of gets to network architecture. I didn't need access management, other architectural issues, so I, I think it's not pure prevention. Um, to some degree it is, but maybe it's more valuable money to be spent on instead of stamping out individual bugs to like minimize blast radius of a particular bug. Because that's really the only way you're going to help with a zero day besides quick detection response. Yeah, I mean, you you have to do both in the end, right? I've seen this industry pendulum back and forth between predict and prevent and detect and respond. And if the reality is if you're just focused on detect and response, then you're constantly in firefighting mode. If you're just on prevention, you're going to miss something and something's going to happen. And you got to kind of do both. But it's interesting because we've been talking a lot about WordPress and content management solutions and these things that are being managed by marketing and outside of the purvey of security and and all of these things. And like, oh, it's okay though. It's just marketing. It's just a public website, these sorts of things. But sometimes that's probably your most popular website or popular, you know, host that you have across your company. And it's not your, it's not your team that's hitting it. It's your customers and they're all visiting it. And if I've suddenly in my marketing site gets compromised and I'm serving up malware to everyone who visits it, well, you know, there's, there's a huge impact if suddenly I have, you know, a million different users that are hitting this, they're all getting malware because of my website. I wonder when the business cuts off InfoSec and goes like, you've gotten enough money now, make it better with what you, what you have. And they kind of have a point, you know, I think what is our industry spending $120 billion annually and uh, only for everything to get hacked all the time. And the best we can tell them is, uh, Hey, we, we tried our best, you know, that sort of thing. (sighs) Yeah. I just think the counterpoint though, is like the Equifax type situation or the capital one where it runs to like hundreds of millions of dollars and so it, it, it's really hard for us to put like the what what's the insurance industry term like the expected loss on there and balance it with the spend. And it's because we don't have the data. We don't know if we've, we're spending enough to sort of put the insurance policy that we don't get have the hundred million dollar plus loss. Um, so I think this this diseconomic. One of the things in, uh, that I was looking at is um, I've been studying cyber insurance for like six, eight plus years that um, what seems to matter in terms of dollar loss is dwell time of the adversary. If you give, let's say you give uh, somebody root access on a bank for a day, how much money are they going to steal? Eh, not a whole lot. If you give them for a year, they're going to they're gonna rob the joint blind. Same hack. The only difference between the two and losses is dwell time. So fast detection and response. That's where I get back to peak prevention. If we can detect a hack, uh, detect a breach, and get the uh, adversary off the system quickly, we can take all the breaches we want. If you only get an hour a day a week on the system, you're not going to cause too much harm. I think the reason Equifax loses hundreds of millions of dollars in that breach is because the bad guys were there for, what, six, nine months plus? If that wasn't the case, we, we wouldn't, they, would, they would be another footnote in the DBIR, and that's it. So, so I think that you know, to take Ed's point, though, it still has to be a balance because if you're constantly, oh, a new intruder today, oh, a new intruder later in the day, a new intruder tomorrow, let's, let's clean up after them. Let's get rid of them. The only way that you can cut down the dwell time is if it's manageable, right? And so if you had, if you had a breach a day and you, you, even if you had really good detection and response, I, I think it would be hard to clean up. Um, all of those intruders. So I, I think I, you're absolutely right. It is dwell time, but it has to be a manageable number of intrusions to keep that dwell time low. 
Okay, so that, that brings up the really interesting, difficult, almost impossible conversation is what's the appropriate amount of spend between the two categories on prevention and detection and response, and how do you approach that exactly? That one's difficult. I mean, it, it, there are models out there like FAIR and different things like that, where at a broad level, you can kind of estimate and say, all right, here's kind of your expected loss ratios and different things like that. And there is going to be a, a point of diminishing returns, right? And uh, I think uh, Michael Reutemann f- uh, from our data science team had kind of looked at a lot of these various breaches and, and kind of along the lines of it, it's, it almost follows a power law, same as, as kind of like venture capital does, right? So you've got these VCs out there that are investing in a bunch of different companies. Most of them are gonna fail. A couple of them are gonna be singles and doubles. And then they're, they're aiming for one or two to make their entire portfolio with hitting a home run, right? The same things happen with these breaches. All these different incidents that happen, tons of them are just really small. Uh, either you don't hear anything about them or you hear a little bit about them or to your point, Jared, that's a footnote in the DBIR. And then there's a few that are this, these mega breaches, right, that, that just, you know, are in the news that, that cost the, the company tens of millions or even more. Uh, you know, it, it follows this this power law, almost hockey stick of there's a few that are really driving a lot of the average breach costs across the industry. Those breaches also decide what the regulators say you have to do, right? So because of that breach, which ha- you know is sort of the once a year, it, the, the regulation gets put, put in place and then everyone has to follow. So anyone in a regulated industry kind of has to deal with, with that. It's not risk-based necessarily. Yep. So, uh, and that's where you get to the point where I tend to make fun of the InfoSec industry and how we do budgeting, how we, we choose our priorities. We take last year's budget at 10%, go to RSA or ask Gartner on what the new threat of the day is. And we add a new security control around that, a new, a new point solution. And that's how we do InfoSec. There really is no strategy behind it. And then we're in this world of COVID where we're not going to conferences and things like that. So uh, what's the new threat of the day? What's, what's the new product shortlist going to be when we're not going to conferences anymore? Like, how does that... Uh, how does that ethos evolve? Because it's all very new. Like, uh, maybe we get more strategic these days, but... Where do people, where do CISOs are getting their information about what to do next? Like, how are they doing that now? So I, I think, I think they have, they have network, they have networking groups, right? So we're, we're, we're a member of a few different groups in the, in the sort of the Boston area. I think, of course they listen to podcasts, but I think they, I think the CISOs talk amongst themselves. They're like, what's working for you? I mean, when COVID um, hit um, and people were trying to deal with how do I secure that remote workforce? a lot of CISOs started talking to each other um, because they're like, how are you doing it? How are you, 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 you going about it? Um, so I, I saw that more interpersonal networking that wasn't related to conferences at all or Twitter or whatever, just person to person or small groups chatting ha- happened more. So maybe it goes to like in the, 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 the ethos of, uh, of InfoSec now is how do you secure the remote workforce? Because that's the, the one constant change. And anything we do in this industry must be tied to that because all our developers, all our IT people, all our infosec professionals, all our salespeople, all our marketing people, everything that they're doing with the tech is all going to be remote. I mean, is there anything else that was a singular greater change about the things that we're protecting than that? I mean, even where the customers are and they're buying stuff from us from, they're all remote too. You know, now that's the paradigm shift. Good news is we all went zero trust earlier this year. (laughs) Yeah, so that's a that's a it's a huge challenge. I I think it's also a big wake up call because we were we were slowly walking into a world that was all remote uh, because people I I know at at, you know we were allowing more and more remote employees full time. People that came into the office who lived on you know had hour plus commutes are like, well, I'm going to come in four days a week. I'm going to come in three days a week. And, and I, I think we're slowly going re- more remote. And um, it was just a wake-up call when everyone's remote, when people started to say, wait a minute, how are my security controls working where everyone's on a laptop at home? <laughs> if it's not endpoint security, I don't have it. I don't have it, right? So how am I, how am I doing patch management? You know, uh, if I was using the VPN for, you know, um, authorization, I can't do that anymore. So 
we we use how does it change the threat models for the average adversary? Does it how much does it really change if you're targeting an organization or even like the mass blast approach? If everybody at the organizations you're targeting are all remote, what does that change about the style of attacks that we're going to see? Well, I can tell you one thing is is a lot of organizations aren't patching as regularly or hitting 100% of their endpoints like they would because people have to connect to the VPN to update unless you've moved to a cloud-based, you know, zero trust and uh, patching. So um, I would think going after, you know, the vulnerabilities, which were supposed to be patched in last patch Tuesday would be a good strategy, better now than it was like six months ago. Oh, okay. So you have to, to connect in, you have to be connected to connect in, you have to connect to the VPN to do patch management to be connected to the VPN. But just because you're not connected to the VPN doesn't mean you can't get hacked. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah. Well, even <laughs> even better is to look at all those machines that were, they're only going to get patched if they connect in via the VPN. But even if you looked at them pre pandemic right um and and dan would know this like from some of the re uh, research we did with scientia is they're probably doing an okay job at patching all of those uh vulnerabilities from microsoft it's everything that's not from microsoft right right because then you need some sort of third-party tools and those third-party tools require you to be on the vpn to manage those endpoints that's right so yeah it's gotten worse i don't know why it just occurred to me um there are tools out there that uh, companies use, including InfoSec, that when somebody lands on your website, you can see what company that they're from based upon their IP address. Um, now that everybody's remote, using v, probably split tunnel VPNs, that doesn't work anymore. You don't, you don't know who's visiting your websites because they're all from home. Well, yeah. So a lot of those, um, you know, open source, you know, security scoring solutions um, that would put a rating on a company based on different things like their endpoint, their endpoint understanding of a company just went out the window, right? Because they were requiring, they, they were looking at that IP address that was an exit of the VPN. All that bot traffic is no longer coming out of your network, so you must be secure. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone got more, endpoints got more secure. <laughs> Uh, well, there's one other thing that's been uh, kind of changing uh, the landscape uh, for the security folks this year, other than the pandemic, and that is uh, we have a, an upcoming election, and and some of the things that are that we are starting to see both pre and probably post election as well. I'd be curious as your guys' thoughts as to what what is going to change this year because it's an election year. What will change post election if if things uh, kind of change in the in the in the White House. One of my curiosities I was talking about on Twitter a moment ago is um, where the campaign websites and their supporter websites are hosted. You know, just just do general analysis on the inventory of the of the campaign websites. Are they on the same hosting providers? Are they in Google? What countries are they from? Just anything that might stick out. Just on cursory analysis, I noticed a ton of websites behind Cloudflare. I think they know what we modestly already can assume. We're going to see a tremendous amount of DOS coming up, if we haven't already, leading up into the election. A lot of DOS attacks everywhere. But I think the uh, DHS is more aware of the attacks now than they were four years ago. I think four years ago, we were kind of caught with our pants down. I, I think there was a lot like attacking like the, the, the voter... Um, the voter registration systems and things like that were sort of angles of attack that people hadn't hadn't really thought about, um, or certainly not pervasively on a national scale. So I, I think that the we we learned a lot from the election four years ago, and there's a lot more hardening and monitoring in place. Obviously, it's not perfect, but DHS is saying that they're not they're not seeing the kind of attacks they even saw last time, and and I think they're looking more. So, I mean, maybe we've kind of scared the enemy into not doing anything, or maybe they're just waiting for the last minute. I don't know. I think, and this is just me speculating here, it might be a more disinformation campaigns, meaning if you wanted to attack a democracy, you just have to d destroy people's trust in it. When the election happens, whatever the outcome is, is anybody going to trust the outcome? And is anybody going to be able to prove one way or the other that the election and the voting system was fair? Do we have good audit trails? Can we prove to ourselves that the voting system was fair? If we can't do that, then that's a, that's a difficult spot. That's what I don't, I don't want for this country, that we can't prove that it was fair. 
Yeah, so that's that's why I you know I follow Matt Blaze and he really knows what he's talking about on this stuff. And states like Colorado, where they have these audit controls in place, where statistically they can see if something is is getting messed with, right? Because like it just it just it it can't happen naturally that way. Um, the uh, you know I think Colorado might be one of the only states that has those those kind of sampling audits that they have to do by law. Other states only do it when the election is super close, right? When it's within like 0.1 percent or something. So I think it just should be a standard thing is to audit the results of every of every election. It might cost a little bit more money, but it, what what's the price of democracy, right? And, and see, that's my concern there. Like we might be able to secure it, we might not be. But either way, you know, was the erection cheated? Was it not? We got to know one way or the other. Otherwise, what's the point of any of it? I mean, that we got to know. And, and I also think part of it is the willingness to um, accept that the results might take a while to become certified, right? Because until these audits take place, until the right counts take place and double counts happen, we, we won't know. So th- this idea that we know instantly because we live in a digital society, I, I think we have to let go of that notion because we have to have paper and it has to be double checked or, you know, I have a hard time believing in the integrity if those aren't there. Is there enough time for a manual paper audit between November and January when the transition would have to occur? <laughs> Absolutely. I think they just have to set the expectations that, you know, the results are known in like two weeks. I, I'd be happy with whatever time it took, provided we can actually do that. Can it be audited? Are there the paper trails? If there are a day, a week, a month, fine. As long as we can physically audit it, great. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's a great point. Um it's well beyond my pay grade. I haven't uh, done too much on, on the election security stuff, but uh, I will definitely be following Matt Blaze after this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, but, yeah, Matt's great. He's uh, um, he, he's not the only. There's another name. I'm just I'm blanking on it now. Matt Blaze and uh, the guy from the University of Michigan, uh, um, Professor Hel- Hellman or something. Yeah, like that. yeah. So yes. Yeah, those guys are really, really, really good, thoughtful conversations. Even a little humor thrown in one of the, one, of, one of the two. Chris is absolutely right; those are uh, great guys to follow. Awesome. Um, well, with that, I know that we are starting to run a little low on time. Dan, uh, you want to come back in and wrap us up? Yeah, sure thing. It's been a super interesting conversation, guys. And just to kind of tie things off, so Jeremiah. Can you kick off what's something that you're working on right now that you're just super excited about you think uh, people should be paying attention to? Um, I spent the last, uh, I'm dating myself here, 20 years in application security. And the number one problem I found is most companies don't know what websites they own. So the problem that I'm tackling uh, with the next phase of my life here is something called asset inventory. I want companies to be able to know all the assets that they have, their external attack surface. And so the part of that is that's what I want for them. But I've uh, gone after trying to do an inventory of not only the Fortune 500, but well down the list of have an inventory of every single company out there so I can understand what the Internet is doing, what they have out there and find signal in the noise. It's fascinating stuff. So that's, uh, that's where I'm working right now, that, that research. I don't know what the lessons are going to be. I'm keeping an open mind. The one I was touting about today on Twitter just happened to be how no one moves really moves to the cloud. They do cloud also. Mm-hmm. Nice. Very, very interesting. Chris, same question. What are you super excited about right now? Yeah. So, um, you know, I've been in the sort of finding vulnerability business for a long time. And um, I actually don't think we have to get better at finding vulnerabilities. We have to get better at fixing vulnerabilities. And um, I, I think that's, that's, that's the challenge. And, you know, we have sore, there are sore products out there. That we're starting to see, especially in the cloud environment, if you see, you know, you detect a misconfiguration and, you know, the the cloud environment with an API call, you can just fix that configuration, right? So we're seeing it there, but it it really needs to move to application security. We really need auto remediation. So one of the places we're we're doing it first is um, on open source components. If we see that you have a component that um, has a vulnerability in it and you're actually exercising that code, We'll look what's the what's what's the uh, the updated component that is more secure that doesn't have that vulnerability and you know is it compatible with the way you're using it you know is the API call the same? We can do an auto pull request and just automatically basically patch that 
open source component. So I think that type of thinking is really what's needed. And, and, and some of the ideas we're working on is, you know, there are some vulnerabilities that are really simple to, to fix in the code. So like if you wrote the code this way, um, maybe a templatized approach where we see how you're doing it. We're putting output encoding on your cross, you know, to prevent cross-site scripting. In a lot of cases, that can just be a templatized approach. You know, you did it, you did it this way, we're going to make you do it this way. Um, I don't think developers are going to want that to be fully automated, but they're, they're going to like to see it presented to them, you know, as a diff to say, you know, look this over, do a code review here. Is this a correct diff? Do it. Just like they might be checking their buddies, uh, code change, like, and they're just going to check the machi- machine's code change. So I, I think that auto remediation, auto pull request is, 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 is sort of the next wave of actually making more secure software. So uh, just to jump in there, I, Chris is speaking my language and to set him up here because I've been tracking remediation rates forever. I think at White Hat it was like stable at 50%, but I, Chris, if I recall recently, some of your uh, 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 your state of the sorry, I'm blanking on the name here. What's the name of your report? The state of the state of software security. State of software security. Your your remediation rates that you're seeing are going up, aren't they? They are going up, and so what we did was we wanted to correlate like what activities are our development teams doing that what what correlates with that rate going up, and the and the the highest correlation was the number of times they changed they they push a new version of their product. So the number of builds per day. So the number of changes and 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 pushes correlates to 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 them fixing the code. So it just goes to show, like if you find a vulnerability and you're going to put out a release in six months after you found the vulnerability, what's the likelihood that you're going to fix that before then? But if you found it and you're putting out a release tomorrow, it's actually more likely that you'll fix that for tomorrow's release than you will because there's a lot of factors like oh we can do it later kick the can down the road or, um, you know, the, the resource that knows how to fix the bug is now on a different team. So it becomes harder. So the immediacy of the, of the churning of the code actually is what we found makes the remediation rates go up. Oh, that's super interesting. I think we've found uh, similar uh, good news on the infrastructure side for remediation rates as well. But uh, I think that's going to wrap it up for us today. So I will go ahead and link both of your guys' uh, Twitter profiles on the podcast page, because if you're not already following them, you should be. And I'm actually surprised you're listening to this podcast if you aren't. But we'll make sure to link that. We'll definitely link uh, Barricode, the report as well. And then with that, thanks, gentlemen. I appreciate you joining and giving us such an enlightening conversation. Our pleasure, guys. Thanks very much for your good time. Thanks a lot. Thanks, all.